0: And I'd invite you to take your copies of the scripture with me this morning, turn to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 14, the moment we will read the first 14 verses of Exodus 14. I was reminded this morning, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, that says this in verses 6, 7, and 8, A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This word that we are about to read is a word that endures and lasts forever. It will never come to an end. It will never be out of place. It will never be irrelevant will never become untrue it will always be true and if the word of our God will stand forever can we not stand upon that word will never falter will never fail will never let us down will never disappoint will never be not exactly and precisely what we need. What is it that you need this morning? You think about all of us gathered here, and all of the different answers that we might give to that question, what is it that you need this morning? I believe and I trust that what we hear from God's Word will be exactly and precisely what you need. That's the way that God's word works. It works in a way that is miraculous. It works in a way that is supernatural. It works in a way that is unfading. And it works with precision, exactness, preciseness. To get into your heart and my heart your life, and my life to tell us what we need to hear. So may the Lord give us ears to hear. Would you stand with me as I read Exodus 14, the first 14 verses? Exodus chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi HaHiroth between Migdol and the sea in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea for Pharaoh will say to the of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took six hundred chosen chariots And all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Hahira in front of baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And The people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today You shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Most merciful Father, since it has pleased you to reveal the mysteries of your will only to your little ones, And since you look to him alone, who is of humble and contrite spirit, who has reverence for your word, grant us a humble spirit, and keep us from all fleshly wisdom, which is at enmity with you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. King David wrote a song in Psalm 18 where he sings, The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. What a terrible, horrifying condition to be in. No one would ask to be in that position. No one would volunteer and say, Yes, I would love it if the cords of death encompassed me, if I was confronted by the snares of death. In fact, we would do everything that we could to escape from such a condition. We would do everything we could to release ourselves from the cords of death, those cords that would have been like they were roped around us, a strong cord that's dragging us down against our will into the grave. It's a desperate condition. And we would like to ignore it. We would like to forget about it. We would like to avoid it. And this is what King David sings. It's his song to the Lord. He faced enemies who sought his life. He faced King Saul who sought his life. Here it is, David, the Lord's chosen king, the Lord's anointed one, was confronted with the very snares of death. Death was lying in wait, ready to overtake him, ready to snap upon him with one false step. Death was around him on every side It had surrounded him, and it seemed like there was no way out. Is the reality of death ever like that in our lives? Maybe we would lament that there is little contemplation of death in our world today. We would like to shield ourselves from it. We can watch it all day long on TV. But when it intersects with our life, when it's us who are losing the friend or the family member, perhaps nothing can make people more uncomfortable than having to confront death. I've seen it. I've seen it in the funeral homes. I've seen it standing beside the caskets. I've seen it as I've been telling people the hope of eternal life that comes through the gospel, the people that are squirming and shifting in their seats who will not make eye contact with me because they do not want to be confronted with their own mortality, the fact that they will die. What do we do when we're surrounded by death? This was the position of Israel. And it's sobering to think that it could be our position as well. What are we to think? How are we to respond when we are surrounded, encompassed, enveloped by death? God, through His Word, leads us through this passage and instructs us in the way out. What is it that we need to know? How is it that God is going to lead us through? You got an answer for that? Good. I got some right here. Good. We'll get there. Excellent. So number one, you can follow along in your bulletin if that's helpful for you. Number one, you can follow along. Here's the answer, I think, to how we face being surrounded by death. One, when surrounded by death, know that God will get all of the glory. Know that God will get all of the glory. Think for a moment about what Israel has just experienced. They have seen the ten plagues come upon Egypt. They have seen the Lord graciously spare his firstborn child from the destroyer. They have seen the Lord work in Pharaoh's heart to finally let them go out of the land. They have seen the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. They were following the Lord's presence as he was leading them. Life was good. They had been released from their oppressors. Live it up, Israel. Life is great. They had been freed from their captivity. They had plundered the Egyptians as they left. What more could they ask for? Look at all that the Lord had done for them. They were on the way to the promised land, the land flowing with milk and with honey. Their hopes were high the life they had been looking for was finally going to become a reality they had reached a major milestone, no longer slaves in Egypt like the junior hire who can't wait to get to high school and the high schooler who can't wait maybe to go to college and be out of the house and then the college college student who can't wait to be graduated from college and have schooling behind them and be done then what happens? reality sets in I got bills, I got to take care of. What, What did they expect? What happens next? Israel gets a good dose of reality in the Lord doing what they did not expect. See this in verse one. Our first four verses here in this chapter gives us the perspective of of God, how he is instructing Moses. And what does it say at the very beginning? Tell the sons of Israel to turn back. Turn back, Israel, from the way that you are going. What? You heard me, Moses. Tell the people to turn back. God, I know that you are going to lead them through the wilderness, but do you know what you are asking? It was telling them to fall back into the Egyptian territory. Don't you know, God, we're supposed to be leaving Egypt? We are set free. We're on our way to the promised land. But the Lord had a, a specific purpose. And in order to accomplish this purpose, they had to obey and turn back. God places Israel back into the fiery furnace. He places back them back into the raging crucible. God was not done with Israel yet. And so God puts them back in this place where there is no escape route out of Egypt. He places them with the sea on one side of them, making them trapped. They are like sitting ducks. Israel, however, will be God's lure. God's placed His lure out there for Pharaoh and the Egyptians. The Egyptians are going to see it. It's dancing before them. Will they take the bait? God is going to use Israel as His decoy to crush and triumph over the Egyptians. And when Israel turns back... It's going to cause Pharaoh to think that the people are wandering in the land. And do you notice that Israel obeyed even when it maybe initially did not make sense? I wonder if we would ever say, God, I will obey you even sometimes if it doesn't make sense. The wilderness had shut them in, is what Pharaoh thought. And there's this idea that they were wandering aimlessly. Pharaoh would think they were confused. They didn't know the way out. They didn't know where to go. And now will be Pharaoh's opportunity where he has a great advantage to regain what he believes he has lost. Here, Israelites with the sea on one side, the great Egyptian army, which will... Shortly beyond the other side, death has surrounded them. Who put them in such a position? Who would make such an unstrategic military move? It's no one other than the sovereign Lord who is orchestrating the whole event. He is the maestro conducting the symphony with each note in its right place, with each instrument playing its own part. Encompassed by death? You are right where God wants you to be. Where are you? Have you ever considered you are right where God wants you? Are things not happening in your life the way that you want them to? Are they not going according to your plan? Is it stressful? Is it hectic? Are you hurting or disoriented or burdened? Are you despairing or discouraged or downcast? Have you ever considered that you might be precisely where God wants you to be? Even if it doesn't seem evident to you, God is in control. He is in control of what you are going through right now. And so we must learn that God's, or that, that man's extremity is God's opportunity. Man's extremity is God's opportunity. That is man's limit. You are at the end of your rope when you feel as though you might break, when the flame is so low that it's nothing more than a smoldering wick. God will not put you out. That it's there at man's limit, man's extremity, that it's God's opportunity to work in your life, to do what you believe Could not be done to exceed even your own expectations. The Lord was sovereign over where he placed Israel, but he was also sovereign over Pharaoh's heart. Do you see that? The Lord knows what Pharaoh is going to say. God is able to discern the hearts even of tyrants. The heart of the tyrant is not out of, outside of God's control. And this heart of this tyrant, the Lord hardens. Oh, how Pharaoh will want to regain control of the Israelites, but it is the Lord who will show that he is in control. The Lord knows Pharaoh will pursue them, this pursuit is this idea that he is going to pursue them in order to persecute them, to hurt them, or to harm them. But what is the Lord going to do through all of this? Why is the Lord doing it all this way? It's so that the Lord will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his army. God brings his people to this place, God so works in the heart of Pharaoh. God does it all so that he is glorified. It is the Lord and the Lord alone who deserves all of the glory. And there's some irony here because this idea of making Pharaoh's heart hard is a sense of making his heart heavy. That's what's going to happen. Pharaoh's heart is going to be made heavy so that God will get all of the glory. And that glory word is another word that is describing heavy. Pharaoh's heart made heavy is so that the heaviness of God's glory would be given to him and to him alone. Pharaoh and Pharaoh's army and the people of Egypt do not deserve glory, only the Lord deserves glory and he will get it. Listen to Isaiah 42.8. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no one else, no other. Perhaps that is the answer that you need to be reminded of this morning. Why are you here? Why are you where you are this morning? Is it so that God will get all of the glory? God was going to be glorified over Pharaoh over Pharaoh's army, over the Egyptians, so that they all would come to know that he is the Lord. They would know that he is Yahweh. God glorifying himself over Pharaoh was a demonstration that he was the true sovereign king who rules over everything and everyone. Pharaoh was just a pretend king. He was merely play-acting. The Lord is the king. He is the one that we are to bow before. We need to know this king. And so the Lord acts in this way to testify to the Egyptians who he is. He is revealing himself to his enemies. This is the way God has so ordained that the Egyptians would know that he is the Lord. It's the way that he deemed best. It's the way that he deemed to be the right way. It's the way that he designed. Was there another way? No. There was no other way. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. God, for the sake of magnifying his glory, set a bait to catch a tyrant just as a fish is hooked. But notice one aspect of God getting all the glory. We are merely told that God will get all of the glory. At this point, we are not told how. The how will come later. But when the Lord told Moses that he would get all the glory, he did not give him all of the specifics. We must be content that the Lord will get all of the glory even if we don't know the how, even if we don't know all of the specifics. And I fear that sometimes perhaps we become too familiar with God's glory. I fear that sometimes we could think of it as common or ordinary. And it might come out like this. Yeah, 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 I, I know that God is going to get all the glory. Nothing to learn here, no great bombshell or mind-blowing revelation in this truth, but such actions and such reactions show how little we actually know of what it's like when God is glorified. It is no small thing, it is the goal, the end purpose, the ultimate meaning of everything in the whole entire cosmos that He created. Everything and everyone is to give Him glory and all that He does is glorious so that everything in the universe might glorify Him. When you are surrounded by death, know that God will get all the glory and so then give Him all the glory with your life. In fact, listen to what it says in the book of Psalms. Psalm 29 says this, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf, and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And all in his temple cry, glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. It reminds me, when Jesus is at the tomb of Lazarus. And as he asks for the tomb to be opened, Martha, the sister of the dead man, Lazarus, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for for he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would what? See the glory of God. How powerful, how amazing, how majestic, how astounding is God's glory. Did you hear what the voice of the Lord does? The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Here is what the voice of the Lord then says next in John 11. Lazarus, come out. And what happens? You see the glory of God. Lazarus comes back from the dead. God's glory is seen in raising people to new life, in saving them, in rescuing them. That is what he does in Jesus Christ. He brings people back to life. And he gets all the glory. Surrounded by death? What is that to one who's been resurrected? Resurrected? Number two, when surrounded by death, understand death will appear to be unbeatable. When surrounded by death, understand death will appear to be unbeatable. We have just been given God's perspective. Now we are given Pharaoh's perspective and Egypt's perspective on the situation of what's going on. What was happening in Egypt, verses 5 through 9, tell us. And we must see from the beginning of these verses the stupidity of the wicked who only dread God's present hand but immediately forget all that they have seen. I said it. They were stupid. The wicked are stupid. God's word says that. So it's not just me. But that's exactly what Pharaoh has done. They've, they did not dread God pre- God's present hand of judgment. But they immediately have already forgotten all that God has done. Think of all that Pharaoh and the Egyptians had gone through. They had just experienced ten plagues. Pharaoh had experienced the death of his firstborn son. Even so, death had visited the entire land. Yet, from the perspective of Pharaoh and the Egyptians... All that they are about to do is completely devoid of any consideration of the Lord whatsoever. How quickly they have forgotten. Even worse, how Pharaoh has been blinded so that he and his army might be driven onwards towards destruction. And it begins with a change of mind. Pharaoh and his servants change their minds and they ask, listen to these words. What is this that we have done? That we have let Israel go from serving us. How would you respond to that? If Pharaoh and the Egyptians would say that, what have we done? Wrong. You have not done anything. The Lord has done it all. You are missing completely what has just happened among you. It wasn't you who let Israel go. It was God who freed his own people. The Israelites were great in number, having them underneath his control, they would have rendered great service to him. They would have built mighty and major things for Pharaoh. Pharaoh's thinking, they should not be serving the Lord, they should be serving me. And Pharaoh was intent on getting Israel back to serving him. Pharaoh is thinking, I am the king they should be subject to. There is no other king who is stronger or more powerful than I am. And so what does Pharaoh do? He flexes his muscles. How so? He readies his armies of chariots. Special chariots. Well-equipped chariots. 600 in fact, chosen chariots. Specifically trained to head into battle. Chariots are the superior weapon of the day. I mean, For Pharaoh to be chasing the Israelites with these chariots, it's like Pharaoh's coming out with an army of tanks and the Israelites are armed with BB guns. All the descriptions of Pharaoh's chariots and his army are meant to convey this truth. There is this sense and idea that there is inequality in this contest. It underscores the hopeless situation of the Israelites. There is no way that they're going to win this battle. In fact, it was going to be so easy for the Egyptians. They're merely going to go out and round up some slaves. There is no way that this is a fair fight when you look at all of the external circumstances. Here is Israel with the sea on one side, the Egyptian army on the other, death closing in, and it appears there is no way for them to win. It appears death is unbeatable. Maybe they should give up. Maybe they should give in. Pharaoh hopes that his great strength would break the spirits of the people so he can lead them back into death. Do we understand that it will appear that death is unbeatable? It will look too strong. It will seem like there is no way out. This is the kind of stranglehold that death wants to have on our world today. It is the kind of hold it wants to have on unbelievers so they would think there is no way out. It is the hold that it even tries to gain over believers in order to bring us to despair. But there is a glimmer of hope. And where does this hope come from in verses 5 through 9? Look at what it says how Israel left Egypt. End of verse 8. Israel were going out defiantly. Or, it could be said they were going out with boldness. Or, very literally, it says they are going out by a high hand. We might want to think that this is representing Israel's attitude of how they went out, but I think, rather, this is speaking of God's power. We already know from chapter 13, which tells us of the mighty hand of the Lord, the Lord's powerful hand had already prevailed once in the face of what looked like uh, an unbeatable enemy. We should not think that his mighty hand will not prevail again. And so this high hand that's bringing out Israel is God's mighty hand. This is the hand that is leading them. Death appears to be unbeatable, but it is no match When it comes to the power of God. What can prevail over God? Who can outsmart Him? Who can outmaneuver Him? Who can outmuscle Him? It may look like the enemy is stronger. It might look like the enemy has the upper hand. But the Lord's high hand will prevail. Even though death might appear to be unbeatable, it is no match for the Almighty God. Proverbs 21, 30, and 31 say, No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Number three, when surrounded by death, trust God will conquer the grave. When surrounded by death, trust God will conquer the grave. We began with God's perspective, we received insight into Pharaoh's perspective, and now we come to see Israel's perspective. Here they are at the edge of the sea, only to lift up their eyes and see the full force of the Egyptian army ready to overtake them, they begin to shake and quake in their boots. They feared greatly and cried out to the Lord. Why did Israel fear greatly? What was it that caused such a fear in them? Look at something here in verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. The people of Israel had one fatal flaw. They trusted more in what their eyes could see than in the Lord. They saw that great and mighty army coming towards them. They lifted up their eyes and they say, I believe that more than I believe in the Lord. And notice, let's just trace this theme here through these verses, 10 through 14 for a moment. Look, what they saw, the Egyptians marching after them, and they feared greatly. Then look at what it says in verse 13. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm. Why? because you are going to see something better than the Egyptian army. What are you going to see? You are going to see the salvation of the Lord. And it goes on to say, which he will work for you today, for the Egyptians whom you see today. So the thing that you are fearing that you see today, which seems unstoppable and unbeatable, there's no way that you're going to escape from them. Moses says, you will never see them again. Don't trust more in what your eyes can see than in the Lord whom you follow. Your faith must be in him. If you live by what your eyes see, you will be deceived. You will be led astray. You will not be led toward the Lord. You will be led away from the Lord. And I wonder if you think this morning about your own life, in the moments when you are afraid, why is that? Is it because in that moment, you're trusting more in what your eyes can see than in the Lord who will fight for you and save you? Trusting more in what your eyes can see than the faith that you have that comes through salvation and salvation in Jesus Christ. It was here that the Israelites cried out to the Lord and they grumbled and they complained to Moses. I wish, I wish this was the only time that we would see Israel complain, but this is just the first of many. They cried out to the Lord. They complained. In fact, this is what we read in Psalm 106, verse 7. It says, This, our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but they rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. That's where we are. There's Israel at the sea, the Red Sea. They're rebelling against the Lord. They are forgetting the abundance of his steadfast love. They are forgetting all of his wondrous works. Think about it. Right there, for them to see, is a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And these words are coming out of their mouths. And Israel asked Moses a question. And they say, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Do you notice the Israelites had interpreted their current situation as God's intention to kill them? Does God want us dead? And look at what it says. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt? Think about what you know of Egypt for a second. You don't even have to know that much. Egypt is all about graves and death and the afterlife. The pyramids of Egypt, what are those? Graves, tombs. Elaborate, wealthy, well-constructed graves, but graves nonetheless. In fact, how many Egyptian discoveries are centered on tombs? Egypt was a land of tombs and graves. And now they want to go back there? Do they really want to go back to that land? The Israelites then accused Moses of not listening to them. They told Moses to leave them alone so they could go serve the Egyptians. We don't have any record of this statement, but it's like an, I told you so. We told you to leave us alone, Moses, but could you do that? Oh, no, you had to lead us out of Egypt. The doubt and unbelief is piling up quickly, and on top of all of it, they say, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. We should have served the Egyptians. That was less risky. Dear Christian, are you ever tempted to say this? It is less risky if we just went along with the world. It is less risky if we just blend in with them. It is less risky for us if we just keep our mouths closed and keep our heads down and don't let anyone else know what we really believe or who we really are. Yes, serving the Egyptians is less risky, but it's not what the Lord has called you to, dear brother and sister. He has called you to risk it all and trust him. He will save you. But is it safe? No. Of course it isn't safe. But obeying Him, following Him, trusting Him is what is right and good and true. Moses responds to address their fear. He tells them, Fear not, stand firm, which is in essence saying, stand on the Lord's side. You want to be on God's side in this. And then they will see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for them. How great is this? The Lord will work for you. You only have to be silent. Israel, don't do anything. Just watch. Put your hand over your mouth. Be silent Be still. God will do everything. You will do nothing. Yahweh will fight. You won't. Israel, you won't be participants in your salvation. You will be witnesses to your salvation. A salvation that is accomplished by the Lord and by the Lord alone. Israel could not fight for for their salvation. Because of their inability to bring out their own deliverance. That flies in the face of what our world says. You can do anything you put your mind to. No, you can't. You are unable to save yourself. There's nothing that you can do. We who were dead in our trespasses and sin. What can a dead person do? Nothing. This is where we all have to start. We are unable to deliver ourselves. We cannot fight against death and the grave and save ourselves we must start at the point of realizing that the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that deserves the judgment and wrath of God. It's not me who said that, that's Jonathan Edwards who said that. There is no work, no merit, nothing that we can do to secure our own salvation. And anyone Hear this this morning. Anyone who says differently is proclaiming a false gospel. If there is someone who says, it's Jesus Christ plus something you do, they are wrong. Dead wrong. It's Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone who can save you. There is no other gospel. There is no other way. There is nothing that you can do to save yourself. There is nothing that you can do to clean yourself up in the eyes of God. He has to do everything. And the good news is he has done everything. He has done everything in his son, Jesus Christ, by sending him into this world to live the perfect life, to die the death that we should have died for our sins in our place. He was buried in a tomb, but three days rose again from the dead. Therefore, declaring that we now, all who put their faith and trust in Him, are completely justified, declared righteous, declared innocent, declared not guilty in God's eyes. We are adopted into His family, brought into his arms, and given eternal life and the hope of an eternity with him. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. We know, we trust, that God conquers the grave. How do we know that God will conquer the grave? He conquered the land of graves that was Egypt. He is about to conquer the watery grave set before the people. And most importantly, he conquered the grave that held our beloved Jesus Christ by raising him again from the dead. The reality and truth of his resurrection means with absolute certainty our resurrection. So that is why it's crucial that our faith is in Christ because when our faith is in Christ, then we receive this assurance and certainty of resurrection and the certainty and security that no death and no grave will keep us from our Lord. Hear this in Romans 8, verses 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written for your sake we are being killed all the day long we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered you notice that there we're surrounded by death will this separate us from God verse 37 no in all these things we are more than conquerors Through him who loved us, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word. We're thankful for what you teach us, how you instruct us. Father, we thank you that the Lord has fought for us. He's fought for us salvation. And we didn't do anything. You have done it all. So we praise you for that. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know You, who does not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we pray that today would be the day of salvation. Today would be the day they would give their lives to Him, that they would repent from their sin, turn from their sin, say, I'm no longer going to live for myself, I'm going to live for Jesus Christ and for Him alone. That then they would know life, they would know forgiveness that they would know hope, and that they would know what it is to be part of your family as your child. Father, I pray that as we look at the world around us today, there may be many things to fear. but may we not trust more in what our eyes can see but may we go back again and see the salvation of the Lord there on the cross there in our Savior there in an empty tomb so that we may fear not and stand firm And may we follow you all the days of our life. Knowing that you will lead us all the way home. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.